Amen. Uh, Brother Pat and uh, Brother Robert will be passing out the handout uh, that was on the table. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand. You all need one of these uh, for today's message. I'm glad you're all here. Uh, this is kind of a uh, unique Sunday, the first of three. Um, we are taking a break from Hebrews for these three weeks as we focus in on the idea of biblical leadership. This is for several reasons, one being that uh, the first Sunday in December we will be nominating uh, new deacons, and then the first or second Sunday in January, depending on when we do our celebration Sunday, we will vote in new deacons. But this is bigger than just the idea of an organization or a group uh, that's on the books of some government entity appointing new leaders, right? This is a very spiritual endeavor. And as members of this church, we need to be as much as possible on the same page of what it even means to be a leader in the household of God. So we're going to read the foundational passages on leadership in the church. Now, these are passages for elders and deacons, but hopefully the handout will show you there is great similitude or unity with these passages. Uh, so I'll begin by reading from 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And then I'll also read from Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain 
but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So I have two main purposes for these three messages. One is to help us all think on the same page when it comes to biblical leadership. And in your Sunday school classes, you're also discussing and learning about leadership from uh, your Sunday school teacher's perspective for these three weeks, all from Scripture, of course. And so I'm going to do something a little bit different, but I do have a second goal. It's not just helping us all be on the same page so that we can nominate the right people or the people that God would have us nominate to serve as deacons, but it's also to call you to leadership. And if you have the handout that I gave you, there are three different categories of verses under each heading. There are nine different qualities that I think represent faithfully the bulk of this teaching that I just read. You could probably divide them up different ways probably make it 10 or 18, however many you wanted, but 18 wouldn't fit on two pages. So, you know, I don't want to kill too many trees. So these nine, I think, represent an organized, unified presentation of what biblical leadership is. And you'll notice that there are uh, regular font. Those are all the things that these passages say to elders or overseer. Qualifications for elders or overseer. Everything that's italicized is towards deacons. And then everything that is in bold down at the bottom is actually addressed to all Christians. So these aspects of biblical leadership are not unique qualifications or unique callings to those who would want to lead. These are actually callings or responsibilities or things you're called to do, commanded to do in Scripture to all of us. Everyone who would claim Christ as Lord should be these things. It's just that if you're going to lead God's church, if you're going to be involved in serving the church, given responsibility for the household of God, it just needs to be really evident. It needs to be amped up to 11, so to speak. But they're all, this is what every mature believer should aspire to, these attributes. And so we'll go through it. So, so those two objectives in mind, to define for us what is the type of person that we should have in leadership in the household of God, and also to call it forth, right? That's what preaching is. Preaching is an attempt to call you to something and, and to help you want to do something, to show you that it's, it's there in the text. This is what the Lord wants of you. And it's what you can be through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've read from 1 Timothy and Titus. And what I want to do uh, for these three weeks, we're, we're not going to cover three one week, three the next week, and three the next week, uh, because I think that would kind of mess up the unity of these attributes. What I want to do is take examples from Scripture and run through all nine and show you how it manifested itself. And the three examples from Scripture we'll be using are John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, and Jesus Christ himself. So the last week will be over Jesus Christ himself, and we'll use Hebrews primarily to get us back into Hebrews as we get back into that, uh, back into our study. So we'll use primarily texts from Hebrews that talk about him as our leader and, our, and a servant leader at that. 
But this first week, we will use John the Baptist as an example of leadership. And, and I hope you can see why this is such a great thing to do. Let me just say at the outset, the reason I'm doing this is this. Let me use an example. Um, I am an armchair fan of baseball. Okay, anybody like baseball? I know it's a slow sport, but, you know. I appreciate baseball because of pitching. It's a fascinating art. It is, I, I would say, probably the most precise and difficult thing to do in all the realm of sports, maybe second to being a great golfer as being a great pitcher in baseball. And here's the thing. Not all great pitchers are the same. Okay? There is no cookie cutter for great pitching. There are principles that you've got to adhere to. You've got to be able to throw a fastball, right? You've got to be able to throw a changeup. You've got to be able to throw a four seam. But the way you balance it out, where you throw a fastball versus a four seam or a curveball or a sinker, how you arrange it, how you approach your approach at the plate to different hitters is different. You can all be great pitchers, but they each have a unique flavor of pitching. That's what leadership is like. And that's why I'm taking these three examples, because you'll see with John the Baptist, you have a very different style of leadership. He fits with all nine of these perfectly, and I'll show you how. The Apostle Paul is different than John the Baptist. He fits with all nine. And of course, Jesus fits with all nine of these, but his ministry is different. And he's, all three of these represent what you could call maybe corners of the triangle, right? For you to think biblically about leadership. So don't think of mature, uh, maturity in Christ or being a leader that it's exactly the same for everyone. And you've got to behave exactly the same way. The flavor is the same way. The way you approach things is exactly the same. No, there is a lot of variance within biblically qualified leader. So I say that as an encouragement, right? That you would perhaps aspire even more, realizing that you're, you may not be like this leader, but God is still calling us to all these things. And it will work itself out in a unique way in your life, but it will still be within these attributes. So let's begin. The first... Uh, attribute of a leader. This is one that is overlooked, I think, by a lot of people who treat these texts. The first is aspire. He says, First uh, Timothy 3, 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And you can see the other places where uh, it's mentioned, uh, a lover of good, to care for God's church, to, to desire to gain a good standing. There, this is a very... Uh, uh, it's rooted in the passions of your soul, in your heart. This is the first, and I would say, uh, the first evidence that God is drawing you to be a leader in God's church, that there is a burning desire to serve, a desire to lead even. And those who want to lead or be in charge of things, sometimes it's a there's a conflict because you want to be humble as a Christian, right? The, the call of Christ is to take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. So it's it's not paradoxical because leading in the body of Christ is servanthood. 
So a desire, a burning zeal to be the foremost servant and to lead out of your example. That is the first quality. And the way he speaks to all Christians, Paul that is, is he commands us that we ought to be zealous for good works. Not to just do good works, but that there would be a zeal in your heart, a desire, a burning passion for good works. And for leaders, that takes the form of leadership, that there is a burning desire to sacrifice your own good, to put aside your own preferences, and to live and serve for the good of God's family. Strive to excel in building up the church. We actually preached a whole sermon on this a few months ago. Strive to excel in building up the church. That's something that all of us should do. But especially in the case of leaders, there is a burning passion, the engine of your heart, as it were, that orders the rest of your life as I want to see the church built up and thriving. And I want to give my life to do that. So how do we see this in John the Baptist? Here's the way I would summarize this requirement. A zeal and passion to devote oneself fully to the good of the people of God for eternal reward. Zeal and passion to devote oneself fully to the good of the people of God for eternal rewards. So how do we see this in John the Baptist? Well, it's how he spent his life. He knew from his birth and when he was beginning to understand what God had called him to do, what his responsibility was. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah calling the people of God to repentance. And this is how Mark says it in Mark 1, 4 through 5. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John could have resisted God's call on his life and remained the son of a priest with miraculous beginnings and probably had for himself a really comfortable life. But he takes this call on his life so seriously, he goes out into the wilderness. He lives in the wilderness and he preaches repentance, an unpopular message that we're going to see later on. And he's dealing daily with people's sins and he's working for the people of God, striving to help them be ready for the appearing of the Son of God. He devotes his entire life for love and good works for the people of God. And he says of himself, I am, this is John 1, 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. This zeal, this burning passion in him was to prepare the people of God for the arrival of the Son of God. And I would argue for every biblically qualified leader, that is what you ought to be doing. That is what leadership is, preparing people, tilling the soil, pleading for the spirit to come, pointing people to the Messiah, saying, get ready. He is coming again. Judgment day is near, even if it's a thousand years away, it is near. Get ready. And devoting your heart like he didn't have a home. He could have stayed in Jerusalem and ministered as a priest of his father's household. But he goes out into the wilderness because that's what part of the prophecy says, that he would be in the wilderness proclaiming repentance. So he goes and he sacrifices the comforts of home for the sake of the people. 
He wants them to be spared from God's wrath, and that should be the engine, the motivating principle of your life. You don't want people to be under God's wrath. You want them to know Jesus Christ and to receive grace and have eternal life. And certainly all Christians should want that, but leaders in the church, that should be amped up to 11, as it were. And that all of us, those who lead especially, I'm a voice crying out, make straight the way of the Lord to the people of God, getting them ready. Above reproach. This is kind of a, a general uh, catch-all statement at the beginning of these qualifications. Above reproach. He mentions it multiple times. Uh, the way it's said towards deacons is blameless, which is almost more intense of a word. Uh, but we're all supposed to be blameless. We're all supposed to be holy. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. So we're all called to this, but the idea is that if you're going to lead in the household of God, that this is something that is actually the case. And it's not that any one of us can be perfect. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But blamelessness or above reproaches is, some, I could summarize it this way, living an exemplary life with no glaring flaws, worthy of the gospel. So how do we see this in John the Baptist? And let me just say, I was going to say this earlier. I love John. I love John the Baptist. Uh, more and more, uh, his example in his life has uh, shaped me and how I understand ministries. So that's why I'm including him here, but I hope you can see this here. It's not just a, a hobby horse. This is something that is there. We, we all kind of move past John quickly, right, in the narratives. But all four Gospels mention him. And Jesus speaks of him multiple times even after John is put to death. And you have this, this preparing of the way. And I think it's something God is calling us to emulate even. So how do we see this living an exemplary life, no glaring flaws, worthy of the gospel? Uh, this is how the angel speaks to Elizabeth, John's mother. He will be great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. So this isn't greatness in the eyes of men necessarily. If you, if you remember John's description, he wasn't something to marvel at. He wasn't wealthy, he didn't have great clothes, but he was great before the Lord. Humility and holiness. That is what God regards and what is needed for leaders today. We can have a lot of skilled people in leadership, but we need people who are great before the Lord. And this is how Jesus says it in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's stunning. And you might think, if you stopped reading there, well, I can't be John the Baptist. How can I aspire? Those of you who may think, well, he's probably talking to me in this whole sermon about leadership, and we want people to aspire to be leaders. And let me just say to those of you who are young, I was going to say this earlier again, but I've had too much espresso. So those of you who are young, when I, when I grew up in church, I never heard anyone say to me, the Lord may be leading you, preparing you for leadership in the household of God, for ministry. 
And whether that takes the form of you're, you're actually paid or, or a pastor or a missionary, that, that's not necessarily the case. That doesn't need to be the case for you to be being prepared to serve the church. That, and, and so I want to say to you young people, the Lord may be even using this message today, hearing about the example of John and these requirements to prepare you for leadership in the household of God. And so Jesus continues. He says, yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So he's the greatest one born of woman. There is not arisen anyone born of woman greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. So if you feel discouraged, like I can't aspire to be like John, Jesus says, yes, you can. Because John didn't have the new birth as we have. He was filled with the Holy Spirit like the saints of the Old Testament, but he doesn't have the new birth like you have. As a Christian, the Spirit working in you to that degree, do you understand the power at your disposal to pursue holiness and greatness before the Lord by the Spirit? If you're in Christ, do you not know that it is God who lives in you? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's God at work within you. Above reproach. Also, chaste. And you, you can see on your, your handout, I, I use the word chaste. That might not be a word you use um, very frequently. But he says the husband of one wife or one woman man is the way the Greek reads. And you got to be uh, attentive here because the three examples I chose weren't married, at least in the time that we uh, understand them as leading and serving the church. So the requirement here, if you're going to speak on biblical leadership and your definition of biblical leadership isn't big enough or dynamic enough to include John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, or Jesus, I think you should probably edit your definition. So here's what this means. One woman, man, this is how it, I, I would summarize it. The sanctity of marriage, and I do think that's implied here, the sanctity of marriage is central and even worth dying for. If you're married, you are one woman man. And if you're unmarried, you are consecrated to the Lord alone and pure. So for John, can you think of any examples where marriage was really, really important to him? And he held the sacredness of marriage in such high degree. Yeah, it's what got him killed. Mark 6, 17 through 18. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Because marriage is so sacred to the work of the ministry, it is the foremost signpost an example of what is happening in the gospel. If you're married or unmarried, the sacredness and centrality of marriage to the message of God and the work of God and the ministry of the gospel, it's worth dying for. And he does. Because he says to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her as your wife. That's what gets him in prison and what makes Herodias devise a plan to him get beheaded. Would you lose your life? over the sanctity and sacredness of marriage. And you just say to those who aspire to be leaders, that day may be coming. I don't think things are that much different between today and then. You can offend someone. 
get marked as one who promotes hate speech to speak biblical truth on marriage. And this is how God speaks to all of us, that verses from Hebrews 13. Let, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. As for all of us, let marriage be held in honor, especially for leaders. And this verse isn't specifically regarding John from Matthew 19, 12. But I think it applies to John. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. There are those who have, for the sake of the kingdom, set themselves apart from the blessing of marriage for the sake of the kingdom. But even if that is the case, marriage is held in such high regard that you're willing to die for it. And a one woman man, if you're married, it means pure and undefiled. Having his house in order. This is mentioned multiple times. It's actually the bulk of words. If you just go by word count, this is what uh, the requirements are for a biblical leader. I'll just read some of them. Knowing how to manage his own household, managing their children and their own households well. But this is something that's commanded to all of us. If you look at Colossians 3, 18 through 21, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is a healthy home. This is a command for all of us. The priority of how things function within our household should be top of the list. It has been said that a minister's home and how the home functions, and if it is Christ-centered, that is the greatest part of a minister's resume. If you want to lead or serve or care for the household of God, you must show yourself and prove yourself by how you take care of your own household. So, just like the last requirement with one woman man, uh, neither Jesus nor the Apostle Paul nor John had children. And none of them had houses. So how do we see this quality at work in these three great examples? Well, here's how I would summarize this requirement. This is the heart of what he's getting at. Managing all of your possessions, all of them, whatever you've got, all of your possessions for the sake of the kingdom and leading those under your care to the kingdom. Right? I think that's the spiritual principle here. That regardless of how much you've got, most people get married, most people have some degree of a household, so it obviously applies, but even if you don't, the principle, the spiritual principle here is not some cookie-cutter idea of a manager of a household, but managing all your possessions for the sake of the kingdom. And leading those under your care, whoever they are, to the kingdom. So how do we see this in John the Baptist? This is one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament, Matthew 3, 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
you may think like, well, how in the world does that apply to this idea of managing your own household well? Well, it's everything he had. And all of it was for the kingdom. The reason he was able to train himself to be able to live off of the elements as though so he could remain in this place, the wilderness, where God had called him to preach repentance and do it every day and deal with people's sins and hear their confession and to call them to repentance every day. And his wardrobe was simple and practical so that he could remain in that spot for ministry. It wasn't just because he was eccentric or just a weird character. This is what it means to follow exactly what God had for them. So the question to you, those who aspire to be leaders and all Christians, is what are you doing with what God's given you for the sake of the kingdom? Seeking first the kingdom of God isn't ignoring all that he's giving you. It's taking everything he's given you and using it for the kingdom. And how else do we see this? And this is, this is a verse I would give to show how he cares for those under his care and leads them to the kingdom. I love this text. John 1, 35-37. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. So these are people who have come out into the wilderness and have been willing to spend time with John and endure the elements and helping him baptize people and hear his teaching and, and endure the elements. Two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus. This is after the baptism of Jesus. He looks at Jesus as he's walking by and he says, so there his two disciples are standing. Jesus is walking by and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Parenting, if you're a parent, or if you're in Christ and you have spiritual children, behold, the Lamb of God is the heading. That's the summary of all that you're supposed to do towards those under your care. Behold, the Lamb of God, and then release them to follow him. These are his kids. These are his boys. His disciples. And he's not offended or sad. This is his point. He's saying it intentionally while they're standing there, while Jesus is walking. Hey, look at him. Go after him. Follow him. Jesus is the one you need. So manage all of your possessions for the sake of the kingdom and lead those under your care to the kingdom and its king. Self-controlled and dignified. This is kind of another catch-all of the requirements. Self-controlled and dignified. And this is not something for just leaders, obviously. You can see in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's for all of you. Be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit in the same way that alcohol controls the behavior of one who is drunk with wine or whatever, let the Spirit fill you such that the Spirit controls your actions. Also, 1 Timothy 2, 2, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's to all of you. And there's mention in these verses I've correlated under this uh, to not be violent or arrogant or quick-tempered. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. 
for they shall be called sons of God. So here's the summary or, or the, the, the way to get at the heart of these requirements. To have mastery of yourself. Mastery of yourself and your passions. And manifest the fruit of the Spirit. All of us should want to have mastery of yourself and control over your passions and to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. But again, in the case of leaders, those who want to serve and lead in the household of God, it should be obviously the case. And how do we see this in the life of John? John, uh, the Gospel of John, verse uh, chapter 3, verses 25 through 30. I'm sorry, Luke 1.15. My apologies. So that passage that we already referenced, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So this is a special requirement for John, and it's implied that he followed this requirement This is a special level of devotion to the Lord that not necessarily all of us are called to. But it is especially the case for John. And he obeyed this requirement. So holiness and self-control may not be for you, especially if you're a leader, just falling in line with basic expectations for Christianity. I'm not murdering anyone. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing anything. I'm not cheating my boss, right? Basic levels of expectations. The calling for behavior within the leadership group might mean you sacrifice your freedoms for the sake of the kingdom. You can see this with Paul. He says at one place, don't I have the right to take along with me a believing wife, just like all the other apostles? But for the sake of the kingdom, I am not making use of that right. Don't I have the right to receive support from all these churches that I've ministered to and planted and all that for, because that's how God designed it? Yes, that is the right of an apostle, but I'm not making use of that right. The calling of a leader is often to have a higher level of expectation from the Lord and for yourself. And also Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. This is, uh, this is an example of how John is self-controlled and dignified. Now when John heard in prison, so he's already in prison at this point, and when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, his disciples, Go tell John what you heard and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So how is this an example of John being self-controlled and dignified? Because it shows us how he deals with doubt. That's just one example. And we'll see this with the Apostle Paul dealing with suffering. When doubt comes into your life, and John is in prison, he's about to be killed. He knows he's probably going to be killed. Doesn't exactly know how or when, but he's in prison and Herodias hates him. He's probably going to die. And he's questioning, has it been worth it? I've been calling people to repentance. I've called the leaders in my nation to repentance and I've offended them. Oh, for preachers who would be willing to do the same. 
I've done all that. I've fulfilled God's call on my life. And I'm in prison and I'm about to die. Is it worth it? So how does he deal with the doubt? Does he just spiral into anxiety and fear and depression in his cell? Start writing his regrets on the wall? He sends his disciples to Jesus. He's self-controlled. He knows that he's dealing with doubt. And he says, I'm going to go to the source. I'm going to go to the place where I know I can find the sure foundation. If he is the one, if he is the one that we've been waiting for, if, if he is the one that I've been preparing the way for, then it's worth it. So he knows how to control himself and have mastery of himself even when he's about to die. Also, not greedy, but generous. This is mentioned multiple times. Not greedy for gain, hospitable twice. Not a lover of money, not greedy for dishonest gain. And this is obviously a requirement for all Christians. You can see those two verses there. So how do we see this in the, uh, the life of John the Baptist. You can obviously think of many of the passages we've already read and, and uh, kind of connect the dots there, but uh, two more passages that we'll look at. John 3, 25 through 30. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, so Jesus, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. He who would desire to be great in the kingdom of God must become least of all, a servant of all. John could have arranged it so that he didn't offend Herodias and he maintained a ministry and had for himself a nice retirement and a comfortable life there out in the wilderness. He could have asked his disciples, build for me a house out here. But that wasn't God's desire for him. He must increase and I must decrease. All of his disciples, all the people, instead of coming out to John now, are going to Jesus. So he's losing his influence. He's losing his ministry. He's losing power. And how does he respond? This, this is it. This is great. This is why I came. People aren't necessarily needing me anymore, but they're going straight to the source, straight to the Son of God, delighting in people going directly to Jesus and losing a degree of influence in their lives because they're going to the source, not that they ever would disregard you. I mean, people still loved John, but it's just like the, the woman who told uh, the villagers, hey, look at what Jesus told me. And then they said after they met Jesus, it's no longer because of what you told us because we've seen it for ourselves now. And then also John 1, 19 through 20. And this is the testimony of John when Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed. 
and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. He doesn't capitalize on all the excitement and all the people coming out to him and the hundreds maybe who would have maybe even been willing to give him a lot of money and attention and power. He does what God calls him to do. And he rejoices in even losing influence. Not greedy, but generous. A humble servant must not be puffed up with conceit, must not fall into the condemnation of the devil, which the devil fell through pride. He must be God's steward under God's leadership, serving on behalf of God's people and serving well. And this is something for all of us. You can see those two passages there. So how do we see this in the life of John? I don't think there's a need to, to summarize humble servant that much more. You're, you're, you're serving and you're humble about it. So how do we see that? John 1, 26-27 I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. If your posture towards the Lord is humility, and you think, you honestly think, it's not just a throwaway line for you, I am not even worthy to untie the strap of Jesus' sandal. And also Matthew 3, 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to, ba to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. This is an attitude of all servants of the Lord. We are but unworthy servants. There's not a swagger that should come with serving and leading within the household of God. Humility, the least of all the saints, as Paul calls himself. Lowly. Affiliating yourselves with the lowly. Proven. He must not be a recent convert, so he has a track record of being in the faith. He must be well thought of by outsiders. Even people who aren't Christians must think well of those who would lead within the household of God. And let them be tested first. This is specifically to deacons, but you could say it would also apply to elders as well. Let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's to all of us. So what's the heart of this? Both God's people and unbelievers recognize the proven track record of faithfulness in service to the Lord. That's what I think is at the heart here. Both God's people, those inside the church, those who call on the Lord, and unbelievers, those who don't know the Lord, those who don't care for the things of God, recognize in this person who would want to lead or serve within the household of God a proven track record of faithfulness and service to the Lord. How do we see this in John? Mark 6, 19-20. This is, this is great. And Herodias had a grudge against him, against John, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod, 
feared John. Herod, the king of Israel, he's a puppet king under Rome, but still the king. The king feared John. Why did he fear John? Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. So even the guy who has him in prison and is going to eventually kill him, doesn't because he fears him. He knows he's holy and righteous. An unbeliever, a wicked man, won't touch John until he's tricked by Herodias, essentially, to behead him because he knows he's holy and righteous. And then Jesus says, this is all the way in Matthew 21. This is after Jesus enters the temple and cleanses the temple. People come to him and ask, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. So this is Jesus asking the, the priests and the leaders a question. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed him. You got to see them like huddling, you know, like they're all standing around Jesus, maybe in a semicircle. They ask him the question. They're like, oh, dad gum. And so they all walk around and huddle up like, what are we going to say? They discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So the reputation of John was so highly esteemed as a righteous and holy man that even the Pharisees won't answer Jesus properly or even as a way to entrap him because they know the reputation of John. Well thought of by outsiders, have a proven track record of holiness. And lastly, a man of truth. He must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And this may be perhaps one distinction between the qualifications and responsibilities for deacons and those for elders is in 1 Timothy 3.2, he says, of overseers or elders able to teach. But if you see 1 Timothy 3.8 and 3.9, not double-tongued, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's for all of us. And obviously there are some specially set apart for teaching, but all of us are to be prayerfully speaking the word of God to each other and exhorting one another every day, as long as it is called today, on the basis of the text of God's word. And this should especially be the case with leaders. A man of truth. The word of God has saturated your life. You're skilled in the word of righteousness. How do we see this in John? I hope it's obvious already. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. This is Matthew 11. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? 
A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Your relationship to truth is not just cloistered into your own study and just knowing things to yourself, but you take truth. The way, the way Luke relates it is that the word of God came to John. The truth of God's word came to John and it gripped him. And so he devoted his life to calling the people of God to repentance. A man of truth that has saturated his heart such that he doesn't stop there with the truth in his mind and his heart, but he's calling people to be ready for the arrival of the Son of God. And this is a prophecy. The last verses, we, we had this in our Sunday school lesson, I think last week. Malachi 4, 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And then we'll finish with Luke 3. If you want to go ahead and turn there. Luke 3, 2 through 20. Luke 3. I'm sorry. Luke, yes, Luke 3, 2 through 20. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the regions around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of the Lord. This other worldly flavor prophetically declaring what God has done, what he has promised to do, the fact that Jesus, the king and judge of all flesh, will return, should saturate and motivate your heart. We're not just teaching people, wanting people to live a better life and to figure out how to think about themselves and to have self-esteem. We are declaring the end of all things. It's serious. And this truth ought to grip Leaders, those who serve in the household of God, that all things are coming to an end and Christ will judge the living and the dead. Because if that's not going to happen, what are we doing? What are we even doing? If that isn't real and big in our hearts and the center of our motivation to cry, the one is coming. He's going to return. So prepare ye the way of the Lord. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. This is, this is great. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is otherworldly and offensive. The message of Christ, the truth that grips us, is that the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. God is holy. Our God is a consuming fire, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The crowds asked him, what shall we do? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Holiness is very simple. If you think about it, obey God's commands. Don't make it so complicated. What, O oh man, has God required of you that you but that you love justice, care for the widows and the orphans and walk humbly before your God? He has told you, O oh man, what you are to do. And the people this is verse 15. And the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 17 is great. His winnowing fork is in his hand. I want to find a, a picture or, or paint one myself of, of this image of Jesus holding a winnowing fork. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That Jesus, the great judge of all flesh, not just the, the friend or the pal or the, the co-pilot in your life, the great Ruler, the king of all ages, that is the one that is in our minds. And we see, we see that he has his winnowing fork, the way to separate the wheat from the chaff. And it's happening, brothers and sisters. And only the gospel transforms one from being chaff to being wheat. And you've been given that message. You're, if you're to lead and serve, especially in the household of God, you must have that truth run deep. People need to be wheat. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is good news. Yes, there's judgment, there's fire. There's, he mentions it multiple times, even unquenchable fire. But this is good news. Prepare your hearts because he's coming and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that, it Herod, that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Truth, God's truth, the promise of judgment, the promise of forgiveness of sins for those who will repent truthfully and turn towards Christ, that truth is so valuable and so precious, especially to those who would desire to lead and serve the household of God that you're willing to die for it, willing to go to prison for it, and willing to get up every day and get after it. Let's all aspire to be this 
mature believer and those of us that God is calling or stirring to serve in special ways. May we recognize them and call them even to the task. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You are the one who has given to the church, the prophets, the apostles, the preachers, the teachers to equip us for the work of ministry. I pray that even as we look at these truths and the examples of these great men, John, Paul, and even your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be stirred, that we would have eyes to see clearly who it is you are preparing and who it is you are calling to serve in this way. And I pray that we would desire the greater gifts, that we, we would desire that double portion of your spirit and serve the church and tr strive to excel in building up the church. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.